and welcome to Business Without with me, Dominic Frisby, and me, Andy Uri. So Ori Clark is one of the few, if not the only, firm that specialises in both accountancy and law. And uh, one of its partners is my co-host on this show, Andy Ori, the man whose voice you just heard there. And Andy believes the firm has so many interesting clients doing many, many wonderful and interesting things in the world of commerce. And Andy was determined to bring their stories to a wider audience. And his means to do that is this podcast. So Andy, tell us, who have we got on the show today? Uh, thank you, Dominic. Uh, illustrious introduction as ever. And today we're honoured with uh, Robert Wesson, who um, has done many things in his life, uh, uh, lived in uh, several different countries, Australia, UK and Thailand. Um, he's now an entrepreneur in his own right, um, building a business uh, in, in the world of, uh, I guess, international um, support for businesses in terms of e-banking uh, and financial services. There's, there's a big problem, if, if you're not aware of it, that getting bank accounts, particularly for foreign-owned companies in the UK, has been incredibly difficult. Um, and thanks to people like Robert, it's getting easier. Um, and, you know, he's he's also worked for a lot of the big, the big players out there, um, you know, uh, PwCs and the likes on sort of short-term contracts. He's an FX trader, uh, and a keen sportsman, uh, uh, amongst other things in his life. Uh, that, that's a, a vague, vague <laughs> summary. Is it, is it accurate at all, Robert, I guess? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, just about. Uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Yeah, it's, um, it sums me up nicely. And, and right now you're launching a new a new business, really, um, you know, very much focused on assisting international business. Is that, is that right? Yes, uh, as you alluded to in, in your introduction, it's for, for listeners that aren't aware, then as uh, Andy said, it's a huge problem really for UK businesses that are uh, perhaps newly incorporated that are owned by overseas entities or overseas individuals. Uh, the appetite for traditional banks uh, to open up uh, uh, an account, a business account for those uh, businesses is, is pretty limited at the moment. So we've been trying to fill that gap in the market for a number of years uh, and have launched a new brand uh, very recently, which is very much focused on the FDI market uh, and trying to help uh, those businesses that perhaps don't have the largest UK footprint um, to obtain business accounts that will enable them to get up and running uh, and, and starting to, to get their uh, wheels turning in the UK. And and the major challenge, I mean, I, I've I've been dealing with this for years as well, and it, it would be surprise people to learn that, you know, even a company from somewhere like Australia, you know, somewhere we, we, it isn't sort of regarded as a hotspot, uh, particularly for crime, although uh, perhaps it should be. But um, it, you know that that a large, you know, two hundred million dollar, you know, a very established Australian business will amazingly struggle to, you know, up until the last couple of years and people like you helping, they would they would probably reach a wall um, and may spend months and months just not understanding why they couldn't open a bank account. I mean, from your knowledge now, have, having been dealing with this a lot, do you think that was fair in any regard or...? Um, well, it, it depends which side of the fence you sit on. I mean, just to give a sort of quick synopsis and uh, and why I feel uh, that there has been this issue, a, a lot of it comes down to appetite uh, uh, from the banks. It comes down to uh, legacy fines around money laundering. I mean, even today, 
Uh, I received uh, information from a uh, the bank shall remain nameless, but a large Scandinavian bank uh, that's emailing almost all of its clients, uh, backdating uh, some FX charges for the last two years uh, and stating that they have um, overcharged, um, which obviously is 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 not great news. And and there's been a huge issue with um, obviously recently as well money laundering fines. Uh, it, it's quite well uh, publicised. So the banks don't have a huge appetite uh, to take on businesses, whether it's from Australia or, or from, a, from a country that perhaps may be more of a traditional uh, red flag, if you like. They don't generally make enough revenue from those businesses in order to take on the perceived uh, slightly more risk. Yeah, they're not they're not profitable. Effectively, is the issue. They're not going to make any any money. Yeah, I mean, there's two two sort of sides to this. I mean, we we've onboarded businesses that have uh, you know billions of dollar turnovers. The FTSE 100 companies, uh, you know, they're Fortune 500 companies. They've got very large international exposures and still the banks haven't had much interest in them certainly not from a a quick uh, onboarding process to to give an example you're probably looking at three possibly six months for a standard business account to be opened uh, by a high street bank um, you know which I'm sure you have experience in you know we've we've done it in a day um Wow. Just again for clarification, there does need to be a slight distinction. We aren't selling or or, or operating traditional bank accounts. Uh, these are e-money accounts, and they do come under the e-money license, which is for for people listening would would understand Revolut, Transferwise, Monza, you know, business like businesses like that. Um, so it's a different type of technology, but it still enables the client to. Uh, have a uh, an operational bank account which is ring fenced and comes with all the security that you would need. So yes, there is a slight difference in the product, uh, but ultimately, if the business is not going to be taking out large loans or getting involved in products with the banks uh, that generate uh, interest, um, really, there's not a huge revenue stream there for the banks. So if the banks having to do extra KYC on the overseas entity, obviously running extra money laundering checks, uh, the UK client doesn't have a UK footprint yet, etc, etc. It all adds up. And if the banks aren't making much revenue from it, and there's a larger compliance risk, then you can slightly understand why perhaps their appetite has has, has dwined somewhat. And it's to me, this gets to the this gets to sort of the core of, of the question, isn't it? You know, and I think maybe this is a subject that you've been spending some time looking at and actually coming from a position of an FX trader, that's sort of, it's an interesting perspective to come from. Um, because what is, what is a bank? You know, what, what do we need from the bank anymore? This is, you know, underneath it, I understand the bank struggle because people aren't really coming to the banks to borrow money, frankly, because the banks aren't very good at lending it anymore. You know, my old man used to always say to me, you know, the first thing you would do when you got a client, you know, 50 years ago is you'd walk him down to the bank manager and then you'd say hello to the bank manager and they'd give him a bank account and, you know, and they'd give him some debt and whatever. And it was all on trust. So, I mean, to you, when you look, try and peer into the future, what what do you think the banks of the future are? And how, where does this leave the big players as they sit now? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people do now have different relationships for, for, for different areas of, of what they need uh, from a finance perspective. Um, you know, people on this call probably have a number of different accounts themselves, and that will range from investment accounts to 
perhaps a Revolut account for when they're traveling to a day-to-day sort of current account. Um, I think the, the sort of the more... Uh, the more that there is, there's probably more options, I suppose, is probably a good way of putting it. And I think people won't just be as loyal to their traditional bank provider as they were in the past. Um, the future very much is going to be around, uh, obviously, service, pricing, appetite. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all type scenario anymore, I don't think. And, and But ultimately, for all of these, so so slightly the framework that's happened is what they created this sort of an e-money license, which is which is when when you're dealing in electronic money, not in cash, and you're not providing debt. Is that right? This sort of the combination yes. of those two. Okay. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, w- w- I mean, people that have e-money license may have uh, different facets to their business, which enables them to to, to run loaning uh, products and um, interest and what have you. But uh, your bog standard e-money account will be, uh, as you say, no cash, uh, all electronic transfer. Um, however, the sort of beauty of it is is that the funds, the actual client funds, uh, general in our case, they're always held with a tier one bank. Um, you know, in, in, in the UK, we hold funds with Barclays, which means that the client is still getting uh, the ring-fenced security of the larger bank, which obviously sits very well with people. But then they are getting the culture and the service uh, and the, the, the more agile approach to things, which is driven... Uh, via companies such as Axiom uh, and uh, and my businesses in the past. Yeah, okay. But does that not, how does that relationship work with the bank from your perspective? Do you end up, the bank regards you as what a sort of, um, uh, uh, are you white labeling some of their services or it's more that they, it's the physical nature and some of the underlying compliance that you like an umbrella basically sit under the umbrella of? Yeah, it's a white label. Um, you know, we don't deal directly with Barclays. We deal with uh, a number of partners, but our, our major provider uh, would be uh, Ebury Partners, uh, who then themselves have an e-money license. Uh, indeed, recently they were uh, bought uh, 50.1% shares uh, for £350 million by Santander. Uh, they've got 23 offices around the world, you know, probably bordering on uh, tens of thousands of clients, you know, they'll transact billions of FX a week, which obviously all the major banks want to leverage. So how the sort of the, the relationships work is that Ebri provide a, a, a white label solution, which Axiom has benefited from, but we get to, to, to set our own uh, business path, uh, obviously utilising the products that we feel are most appropriate uh, for our clients and we were the first, really, uh, business to start using this e-money account for uh, the larger corporates, certainly the sort of the, the, the top end of the SMEs pushing on towards the larger corporates, uh, whilst utilising the compliance reach of our partners, such as Ebri, which enabled us to be able to onboard businesses uh, from outside of Europe uh, and onboard uh, with a slightly more uh, acute appetite, if you like, for this type of revenue, uh, now, the bank's involvement in that is obviously they wish to have the relationship with Ebri uh, because of the, the relationship that they have worldwide. So they still profit from this because of the balances that Ebri hold. They'll probably take one or two ticks from the FX trades, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a, a way of Barclays still profiting from this type of business without actually getting their hands dirty. Yeah. 
I think a key thing to understand is that the UK is, I think, the easiest place in the world to open a company. I mean, arguably New Zealand might be quicker or something, but you know, you can open a UK company in an hour or two. Everyone could be called Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Um, you could make everything up and you could have a verified, nice, tidy, limited company entity. Now, if you go, if you try and do that process in a lot of countries, you're talking months of work to get a company set up. So what happens with that is it, it pushes the problem onto the compli- onto the banks, really. So I think I think where the banks have then got stuck in my mind is they're so big, they're no longer able to make rational decisions. It's all process-based decisions. At the moment you try and shoehorn, I mean, I, I don't know, I haven't been through your compliance, but I imagine it, it has some similarity to our compliance, which is still quite human-based in terms of what do I think of this person? You know, you know, I've been to their offices or, you know, are they passing a sniff test to me? You know, can they can they produce their ID in a timely manner? How do they react to certain questions? You know, they, I as an accountant have to understand how they make money quite in quite a detailed manner. So all of that sort of gives me a very privileged position. And I I imagine in some ways, Rob, you can take a similar approach, can't you, to say, well, let's just get our head around what these people are and what they're doing. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think our compliance appetite um, is how we win a lot of business. But, uh, you know, to be clear, uh, you know, our partners are FCA registered. Uh, you know, a question I get asked every day is, is how can you do this and the banks can't do this? That That's actually the wrong question. The banks can do it. They just choose not to. So yeah. we are not cutting corners. We don't, um, you know, try and get around any of the AML or KYC regulations. What we do do is take time to understand that business. And pretty much exactly what you just said, there will be a team uh, of individuals that will look after one account and they will get to know the business. They will understand it. They will do the KYC checks on the overseas entity. You know, that's actually quite a big difference is that most of the UK banks won't do KYC on on the overseas entity. So a pretty standard example would be parent company in North America uh, setting up a subsidiary in the UK with no UK directors, no UK boots on the ground, obviously no UK footprint, everything's North American based. So the banks will just say, well, we can't give you an account because you have no local presence. And then the company will obviously say, well, we can't have a local presence, so we've got a bank account. So that there is that sort of catch-22 situation. So what we've decided to do, what our partners have, uh, is actually say, no, we will do the KYC on the parent company and we will do the checks on the overseas directors and CEO and what have you, which is a little bit more expensive. But we have an appetite for that because we still generate revenue from the foreign currency trades that, that naturally flow through the account. Whereas the banks would just have, a, as you say, a blanket, one-size-fits-all type approach, um, which obviously doesn't provide the flexibility for individual members of staff in that compliance team, generally speaking, uh, to be able to do the sniff test, as you say. They're not allowed to have their own opinions, essentially. It's weird in a weird way that it's, it's happening at the moment with coronavirus too. There's this sort of irony that you become global initially and you kind of are really global and people everywhere. But as you get bigger, you then hit compliance and compliance is very local. So the thing almost gets split back down into sort of, you know, regulated areas. So, I mean, I struggle to think of big companies that do act or can act 
globally? I mean, maybe it's a stupid question. I'm just sort of... Um... Well, no, I mean, I, I, I'll talk from sort of more recent personal experiences is around, you know, we're, we're very big on remote setup. Uh, you know, borders aren't barriers. Uh, coronavirus, yeah, it's, you know, we're in the midst of that. Let's use that as an example. Uh, a phone call this afternoon from, from a lawyer contact of ours that says they've got uh, a large UK company uh, that is doing a deal with the Mexican government amongst other governments around the world uh, that want to uh, obviously import uh, masks and equipment that um, you know, can be used to, to, to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Um, the, these accounts uh, need to be set up very quickly. Uh, we can provide a, a Mexican peso accounts uh, in the space of, you know, say 20 minutes once the client is onboarded. So the client at the moment is a UK-based entity, doesn't have any relationships with Mexico whatsoever, uh, and obviously no bank accounts over there. What we can do is once the UK company becomes a client of ours, we can give them a Mexican peso account, which is fully remote, so there doesn't have to be any presence in that country whatsoever. And the Mexican government can deposit pesos into that account, and then the obviously the UK business can then use those funds as they wish, but you presume that they will transfer the pesos into pounds. Now, that can all happen from the CEO or the, the CFO's desk in London. Uh, you know, and I believe that we can now collect locally in about 30 different countries without having to have any presence there. So what the e-money license enables you to do is to become international because you sit under this one license still and enable businesses to have a local account in that jurisdiction that you don't have to uh, uh, sort of apply, I don't have to adhere to local compliance regulations, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. What I can't get my head around is why surely the banks are going to lose eventually, or are they not? Are they, they've got so many customers, it doesn't matter to them. They're not bothered at the moment, <laughs> I don't think. They're not bothered, but you would, you'd keep, I, what I can't get my head around is, you know, if we were running a business, if we were running this like a company, we would be basically saying, no new sales. Do you know what I mean? In a way, you're saying, well, you know, okay, 80% of business is probably going to be somewhat international in nature. You know, we'll wait for it. I mean, uh, having said that, at the moment when I deal with people, they still mentally want to ensure, most of them want both. They, they're an e-money possibly initially, uh, but or, or enable to them, as you say, when they're traveling or international movement of money, they recognize that banks give uh, are expensive for foreign exchange and pretty bad at it. Um, uh, but they still like this sort of the sense of stability or bricks and mortar in their head. But I'm not sure how long that continues. Um, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, as I said earlier, the perfect sort of setup that we have that you can walk into a, a boardroom in New York for a multinational business that turns over a billion dollars and, and they haven't heard who you are at all. Uh, they have no idea who Axiom are, but you're there because either the government or uh, a law firm that they use has uh, made the introduction. And you can stand in that boardroom and you can can talk all you like about culture and products that you're bringing to the market and how you're going to help on service and pricing and all that sort of stuff. But the only reason um, that they'll give you the time of day will be because the funds are still held with a traditional bank. 
So they do get the comfort of that. They do get the security of having a Barclays Swift code and having a Barclays sort code. Uh, in New York, we use Citibank so they can have a local account in New York, which is a Citibank IBAN. Now, be it albeit that's not a Barclays product, it's still an Axiom slash Ebri product, but they get the safety, the security, this, the peace of mind that their funds are still being held there whilst they're enjoying the culture and the service uh, of you know, what we've created at, at Axiom, which is obviously the, the two put together is the package. I don't think either one by themselves is attractive. Put them together, it becomes very attractive. And just to quickly... Uh, sort of a nod to your point around businesses that perhaps come to us first and then they open up a traditional bank account and we lose the business. Um, a very high percentage of people say to me, Rob, really excited. You know, thanks for being, you know, agile and quick in your operations. Just to let you know, in six months, when we've got a Barclays account, we're going to use them. Um I sit very quiet and say, no problems at all. You know, please feel free to be my guest to, to open up another traditional bank account. To our knowledge, we haven't lost a single client to that scenario. Um, the reason being is, is that we would back ourselves uh, very positively to not only have proved to the client that the service levels are far superior, but also the products that we offer and, of course, the pricing. So they can still have the pound account in the traditional bank's name or, or whatever currency it is. Uh, but they would generally stay with us because why, in our opinion, would you move uh, unless we've given them a pretty good reason to do so, which would basically mean us dropping the ball, uh, which at the moment, touch wood, we're not in the habit of doing. So yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we well, like And to- it comes down to convenience, doesn't it? It comes down to what works and what you're used to. And I mean, I hear good things about the sort of platform and things that you have, but, uh, you know, as a customer, if, I'm, if, if you have got e-money accounts in lots of countries... I assume am I able I'm able to go to one place to to manage and see all of this am I? Yeah absolutely. I mean a, a big play for us at the moment is is the larger firms that have lots of subsidiaries around the world that currently at the moment have zero visibility on their subsidiaries cash flow, real time cash management, uh, you know what their real time balances are. You know we've been speaking to one you know very famous uh, advertising agency they have 250 subsidiaries around the world, and at no time they have any idea what's going on with their cash internationally. What we've provided is a single login to their platform, which is 24-7, obviously, which will enable them to, 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 to click on the individual subsidiary and see their live, real-time cash balances, move it all around, trade FX, do what they need to do. And that's all from one singular login. So you're not having to use different fobs, log in and out of different bank accounts, wait for, you know, Joe Blogs in Australia to get back to you, deal with the time zone differences, et cetera, et cetera. So we really are giving the the client uh, a full international presence that they can run completely remotely. This is uh, Dominic here coming into the conversation. Hello, Dom. I think the uh, statistics are, I think, I can't remember what the statistics are for, for people, but it's something like you're more likely to move house than you are to move banks. And presumably, um, you're even less likely to move banks if the bank or the, I don't even know if you describe yourself as a bank, the payments provider is is providing a good service. That uh, Corporations are as unlikely to change as as, as people are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we don't market ourselves as a bank. Um, you know, we're a payments provider. Uh, we would probably be more in, in line with, with what we do. But I, I, the loyalty that, that we 
get uh, from the services that we provide um, is is obviously there to to for everyone to see. But Andy uh, obviously kindly passed a couple of clients across to us and. One good example is, is an online fashion retailer that, that had real problems making uh, payments in France because they needed to use a certain payment method uh, which enabled them to pay their tax. Uh, and the banks weren't being very helpful. You know, you don't fit into this box, so, you know, we're not going to bother sort of attitude. Uh, obviously, we've helped them with that, um, and it's, it's been a benefit to that client. You know, most clients come to us because they've either got a problem getting a pound account, which we solve, or they have a payments or an FX problem with the bank, which we solve, or they have an international problem that they can't get an account, which we solve. So very, very frequently, businesses are coming to us and saying, Rob, can you help? We go, yes. And then because we've helped first, that that conversation for, for, for the foreseeable future and the relationship is very different. You know, we do have a help first culture and generate revenue later. You can help. I mean, a crucial thing is you go to a bank, it doesn't, I can think of, you know, I think of one person in particular uh, from NatWest, I'll just say his first name, Paul, big up Paul. Anyway, but, you know, there's some good people out there, of course, who work in the banks. And if you build a good relationship with them, they will work really hard to try and help. But they are in such a straitjacket, you know, they're not dealing with a business where, you know, you can make decisions, you can, your your team can sit together. So I do feel for them sometimes. They they can't also be negative. They can't be sitting out front as a quasi salesperson going, we can't help with anything because compliance will say no, whatever I do. Yeah. So go somewhere else. They can't say that. So they have to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to try and help and don't worry, I'll do my best. And, you know, but the reality is, is that, and maybe that's slightly my point with big business is that, there is someone else in the organization with more power than them and more say. So that's the disjointed. And I, I th- and that's what frustrates customers and frustrates people. Um, you know, this, this, the, the, the inability to get to the truth, you know, to get through the yeah. bullshit. There's a, there's a culture in banks of safety first and compliance, compliance takes precedence over everything. And given, given the choice of, of uh, a new customer, and sticking to the rules, particularly after 2008, sticking to the rules always takes precedence. And by the way, this isn't a uh, just a UK-centric problem. I'm, I'm, or I was until recently, CEO of a of a publicly listed um, company in Canada on the Canadian stock exchange that invests in uh, cryptocurrency businesses. And as soon as the the company um, switched from uh, <laughs> its previous incarnation, which was a mining company, to cryptocurrency. The Bank of Montreal said, "No, we don't. We, we're not having your bank account anymore." And so the company suddenly found itself without a bank account. And eventually, we got one with Bank of Canada. But it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. And you'd think it's a publicly listed company on the Canadian Securities Exchange. You'd think that it wouldn't be a problem opening a bank account, but it was absolute hell on earth. But that's because it was to do with cryptocurrencies. I was just going to say, I mean, cryptocurrency is obviously particularly difficult at the moment, but also particularly uh, fashionable, I suppose, popular at the moment. Um, Source of funds uh, and where those funds have come from is is the big issue with that. So, 
you know, banks don't have a huge appetite because they can't really tell exactly where those funds are come from. And, it, and it's difficult um, from a KYC perspective. Um, in, in our case, I, I hear what you're saying about source of funds, but in our case, the source of funds was money that had been in the bank account since it was a, a, a mining company. So, and, and with the bank mining the bank account. So it, it, oversaw, it saw where the money came from. One probably quite interesting point is that, that word, or the two words bank account, you know what? What does that actually mean these days? What does it actually uh, do? Businesses really need a traditional bank account. Um, you know, for for me, I think people have it in their head. Most clients we speak to say, "I need a traditional bank account," and and we talk to them and we say, "Okay, well, what do you need that bank account for?" They say, "Well, we want to separate from our parent company. We want to register with HMRC. We want to do payroll." We want to be able to accept funds in from third parties internationally and domestically. We want to be able to to put these bank details on our invoicing so clients can pay into. Uh, We want the funds to be ring-fenced. We want the institution where we hold the funds to be, uh, you know, safe, in inverted commas, and it were certainly as safe as it can be. We want the online platform to be accessible 24 hours a day. We want the the online security to be as robust as it possibly can be. Um, you know, all of which e-money providers and especially us can, can provide. And I think when you break it down to people, especially people that are a little bit nervous about that, that uh, license, e-money license, and you explain to them that really all they're getting is a, is a unique a coded set of numbers, which is the bank account, in inverted commas, and the sort code and the SWIFT code. And Well, the SWIFT code is not uh, unique, that's generic, but the sort code and the, and the account number are unique. But what they're actually getting is a very, very sophisticated payments platform, which enables them to operate in hundreds of different jurisdictions and do exactly what they want, all from a remote location to touch their fingertips. You know, and, and, and then they're probably not getting that w- with, with their normal bank account. So when you put that argument across to people, they generally go, oh, OK, you know, I understand it a bit more now. Um, perhaps we aren't, don't need to be so hell-bent on a traditional bank account. Was it difficult setting your business up in the first place? Was it, was it from a regulatory and compliance point of view, as well as raising money? Was it difficult getting things going in the first place? No, we're, we're self-funded. Uh, it's, uh, the, 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 the back story is, is we're traders, FX traders. So spent a decade in the city, um, you know, working for you know, well-known UK brokerages that essentially looked after UK-based corporates that had an FX exposure uh, not FX trading from speculating point of view. It was FX deliverable. So you know, you you import you know laptops from China or what have you, and you have a big uh, US dollar exposure rather than using the banks. You you would come to us. Um, we uh, I, well, I, I got fed up with the culture, fed up with uh, just the general um, uh, uh, you know attitude, I suppose, within the FX industry and the city in general. And, and uh, my my business partner at Meridian. Uh, who I knew for a long time uh, had set up uh, uh, Meridian and had asked me to, to come on board. And, and we saw an opportunity really to, to have a lifestyle business, which was offering our existing clients a better price and us having a better life without a boss, really. Uh, and it was never meant to be anything more than that, uh, really, until I stumbled across this issue with the bank accounts. Let me ask you a question How much money do banks make through? FX, and in particular, through their lack of transparency over FX. In other words, people not realising quite how what big spreads they're paying. Uh, massive. Yeah, I mean, I'm, impossible for me to put a number on it, but, uh, you know, general bank spreads would, would, would start about 2%. 
and that would range probably up to about 5% depending on the currency. Uh, clearly, the more exotic currencies would probably take the wider spreads. Um, but if you are just providing, let's say that you are accepting dollars in and the bank just does the conversion into pounds on your behalf, generally speaking, they'll be taking a, a 2% spread on that. Um, and how does that compare to what you charge? Uh, well, we would generally be, you know, well under that. We can go down to, to I mean, our average spread would be less than half percent, um, you know, and, and that ranges from very large international FTSE 100 companies that, to be honest, probably know that they're not getting the best deal, but it, it, it doesn't come that high on their to-do list, if you like. Uh, a CFO probably isn't looking at that as a major uh point of concern because it's not necessarily a cost that the CFO gets uh, to see, as you said, in real time. So it's not like someone's giving them a bill at the end of the month and saying, by the way, your FX has cost you 100 grand this month. Um, you know, it's hidden in the rate, isn't it? So unless you're sort of yeah. made aware of it, then it's very difficult for, for the, the person to actually be realising what sort of rates they're being. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they make for exactly that reason, because it's not it's not a cost that that's actually accounted. I mean, they must make so much money just from people's ignorance. Well, yes, I agree. And that's why FX brokerages originally sort of popped up in the UK. But, you know, very easy. We don't sell on price as, as, as we feel we've got a lot more to offer than that. But, um, you know, an easy uh, analysis of, of a company's bank accounts, uh, transactions over a three-month period, within a minute, I could probably tell them what margin they're on with the bank and then agree half of that margin right there and then. And then by the end of the meeting, the, the bottom line cost has just been cut in half. Um, you know, it, it is literally that easy. And where where are you going to take, what is your outlook over the next, I don't know, three years? How are you going to look to grow the business and in what ways over the next three years? Well, uh, I mean, what I was alluding to earlier is that we, we, we get our foot in the door with, with solving people's problems around treasury and banking issues. Um, but we don't generate even any revenue whatsoever from, from banking. We don't, we don't charge for uh, monthly setups. There's, there's no yearly fees. Uh, everything is generated via the FX uh, margins that we make. And, you know, we believe that really the international remote, especially with COVID-19, uh, you know, businesses wanting to have international presence uh, but being able to operate this remotely is going to be a huge uh, a play. It is already, but I think that will just grow. So for us, it's about uh, making businesses understand that they can have the international presence without having to have the boots on the ground uh, and really looking to utilise the relationships we have with, within government, with the Department of International Trade and businesses such as, as Andes and, and other referrers that, that, that um, we deal with to try and help their, their customers out from an international exposure point of view. Good stuff, good stuff. And if we want to find out more about your company and what you do, how, how would we do that? Uh, well, the website uh, is uh, axiomifs.com. Uh, we, we don't have a policy of, of, of marketing at the moment. Uh, you know, we, we, everything is reverse solicitated. Uh, the, the, the network has been built up over well over a decade, but essentially it will be uh, as I said, our, our people like Ari Clark that would come to us and say, Rob, we've got a client for you, you know, who needs some help in this area. Uh, you know, are you able to, to give them a quick phone call? Uh, you know, that's how we generate business. Um, but, uh, but yeah, very much so. The website is, is there and available for everyone to use. Well, Robert, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And um, 
ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Andy, thank you very much for being my co-host. And uh, we will see you again next time. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without Until then, from Andy Uri and me, Dominic Frisbee, it's cheerio. Cheerio.